bring the ham this year? Who's doing the deviled eggs? You know, who's doing all that special stuff? Who's going to get the stuff for the kids' Easter baskets? Have we gotten that yet? Um, who's going to decorate the eggs? Who's going to hide the eggs? Do you do real eggs or do you do the plastic things? Do you put money in it? Do you put chocolate in it? What do you do? You think about all these things. Have you got your new outfit yet? Will anybody even know if I wear the same thing I wore last Easter? We do think about these things, don't we? But Easter's not really about any of that, but it does get commercialized sometimes. And those are legitimate considerations. It is good to be with family on Easter Sunday. It's great having your kids sit on the same row with you at church and your grandkids. I know there's something special about that. It is fun to get out and do things with the kids. But ultimately, what do we find yourself between now and Resurrection Sunday really thinking about as you prepare for Easter? And I think about what Jesus was thinking in his own mind. We know he was God in the flesh, and that's so hard for me to kind of grasp that. What is? How was he really fully God and fully human? It's hard for any of us to really grasp that, because all we know is how to be fully human. We don't know how to be God, but he was both. But what was Jesus going through? I think about after the 33 years, he knows that he's getting ready to go to the cross. This is what he came to earth for, to ultimately die on this cross. And what was going through his mind after he had been through these 33 years? And as I looked, I thought about Jesus looking at people who were in their 40s. He's in his 30s. He looks at people in their 40s. He looks at people in their 50s, in their 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. And he thinks, I will never make it to my 50s, to my 40s. I will never make it to that age. I wonder if he found himself looking at those older people thinking, I will never know as a human what it will feel like to be that age. I wonder if Jesus slept much as he thought about going to the cross. Did he have trouble sleeping at night, waking up and thinking about being beaten, about going to that cross? Did he think, these disciples aren't possibly ready for the next step to to carry on my work? The questions they ask, the things they don't know, I need more time with them, God. It can't be time for this yet. Did maybe Jesus want to spend more time with his family. Could I just have a few more weeks, God? Could I have a a few more months? But Jesus knew that God had a plan all along. And I thought about, was there anything from a human perspective that Jesus wanted to experience while he was on earth, but knew he would never experience that? Have you ever thought about that? Did he ever wonder what it would be like to be married, to have kids, and know that he would never experience that? Were there other things in life that Jesus wanted to experience from a human perspective that that we get to experience? He goes, I'll never experience that because it's all getting ready to end as I go to the cross. And I could go on and on. And maybe even in your mind as you go to Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, you think about Jesus as you read your... Um, devotionals for Lent, as you read the scriptures, maybe you're, um, you know, whatever you read to kind of help get you in, in, in the frame of mind for, for Resurrection Sunday, as you read those things, you do think about what was Jesus thinking? How must have that have felt to have that kind of weight on you? But I have to believe from reading the Gospels is that this is one thing I do know, is that Jesus was so laser-focused on what God had called him to do in the world. He never lost sight of that. Even with all that was going on, all the popularity, all the crowds that were constantly urging him, you need to be king. You have these powers. You can heal people. You can um, take 
a few loaves and a few fishes and feed multitudes of people. You can heal people from leprosy. You can raise people from the dead. You can turn water into wine. You can walk on water. You need to be king. You need to write everything that needs to be righted in this world if you'll just be the king. To hear your name and afterwards Messiah, Savior, to hear that over and over again and yet staying humble enough to be able to minister to the least of these was amazing. Being able to navigate through all the unbelief of your fellow Israelites, those who you grew up with, who goes, ah, he can't possibly, I know he can do all that stuff, but how is, how is the son of Mary and Joseph really the Savior, the Messiah of the world? The constant negative comments and questioning of the religious leaders, the constant request wherever he went to heal, heal my little boy, heal my wife, heal my husband, Heal my grandmother, whatever. Always something from him. And knowing what you were about to go through, the pain, that suffering, the hatred that he would experience from his own people, um, the betrayal, the humiliation, the loneliness that Jesus would experience. To think about all those and realize that those closest to you, although you've told them at least three times we read about in the Gospels, that I'm having to go to the cross, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be... I'm going to have to suffer these awful things and die. But in three days I will be raised again. To tell them that over and over again and to have them like they didn't even hear it. They didn't really understand what was going to happen. And all of that that he was dealing with and had that weight of the world on his shoulders and not sinning. Can you imagine? Not sinning, not just you know, going off one day on the, on the disciples when they didn't get something or, or just being irritated and just snapping. You ever have those days where you've just had enough? We've all had moments where we just snap. And I think, how did Jesus not snap with that kind of pressure on him and all that he was going through? And I think about also that it, he never came to a point where he goes, you know what, this, these people are not worth it. Do you think Jesus ever thought that? These people are not worth this. What I'm getting ready to go through, they don't even understand. They can't possibly understand, and they don't get it, and and my own people are turning against me. My own disciples are going to all run. One of my disciples is going to betray me, and Jesus knows this in the back of his head, and you think, how does he not just go, I can't do this. I can't do this, God. It's just not worth it. He never came to that point. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad that he never came to that point. He loved us that much. So I want for the next few weeks to really think about Jesus as a human being and the feelings and the thoughts and the incredible love, not only for those in that generation that he saw with his own eyes, but to think about all the people he knew about before, all those generations before, and then even our generation that he knew. And he would know all of us would come later in life. Millions and millions and millions of people. Like he told Abraham, your, your offspring will be like the sands on the seashore. All these people. He says, I'm going to die for each of their sins. And each of us has all these sins that nobody else knows about, but God knows. And he was still willing to go to the cross for that. And that's an amazing thing. So I want us to look at Mark's gospel this morning. And we're going to start in chapter 8. And I want to read something that's a very powerful passage that has always just kind of blown me away. And Jesus, in this particular uh, day, he's with his disciples and he's basically saying, you know, who do people say that I am? 
And the disciples say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, come back from the dead, or, or maybe one of the prophets. But Jesus says, okay, but who do you, those who are closest to me, my disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up, and in Mark it's a lot shorter than it is in Matthew 16. But Peter says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says something that's really strange. He says, don't tell anybody who I am. But you just ask us who everybody thought that you were, and then you ask us who we thought you were. And I, Peter said, you are the Christ. We have to believe that's who you are, but not to tell anybody. And then he predicts his suffering, his rejection by the religious leaders when they go to Jerusalem, and his death and his resurrection. He just says that to them as plainly as he can what's going to happen. And then Peter pulls him aside and goes, Jesus it says, Mark tells us that he rebukes Jesus and tells him, we don't need to hear any talk like that. You're the king. You're the Messiah. Messiahs don't suffer. Messiahs don't get rejected and be put on a cross. That's not going to happen. You're going to take over and restore Israel to their former glory, aren't you, Jesus? And it's interesting. Then Mark says that Jesus rebukes Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have, the mind. You do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men. And maybe this is a flashback of Jesus being tempted in the desert some three, three years ago when, the, when Satan actually came to him and tempted him with these same kind of things. And then Jesus says something that I want us to read. It's up on the screen again. I know I told you I'm going to do it, and y'all put it up there, and then I didn't go to it. Sorry, thank you. So he called the crowd to them after he's had this moment with his disciples. And he says he called the, the crowd to him along with his disciples. And y'all, this is something where we know that Jesus is finally grasping that this is what is getting ready to happen to me. I, I'm understanding. He's realizing he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem and all this is going to take place. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What gives it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels." Now, maybe you've heard that before, but every time I hear that passage, it's just so powerful to think about what Jesus is saying. When he talks about losing your life to save it, what does that even mean, Jesus? How do we lose our life to save it? And Jesus is getting ready to show them physically what he's talking about, but they don't quite understand. But I think it's interesting. He asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And then he tells him what is going to happen to him. He's going to have to lose his life to save the whole world. And they don't seem to grasp it. Because, no, no, that's never going to happen. And then he calls his disciples, the twelve, we know about them. But it says he called the crowd, too. And he's saying, I want you to understand what this discipleship thing really means. And he tells them very plainly. And I think about... What does that mean for us? He was talking to them over 2,000 years ago specifically about what it means to be a disciple, about losing our life to really gain it. But what does that mean to you and me in 2019? What are you and I possibly trying to gain in our life right now and in the process possibly forfeiting 
many things, but maybe even forfeiting our own souls. Have you ever thought about that? It's a brutally honest question. And I want to move on to another part, but I want to read you something that I I read recently. We talk about forfeiting our soul. And Jesus says, you know, what does it mean to possibly try to live, you know, your life for for the here and now? And there was a, uh, a guy named Tom York who was the front man for the band Radiohead a few years ago who was interviewed. And he said this, he says, I thought when I got to where I wanted to be, which is, he's very popular with his band, everything would be different. I'd be somewhere else. I thought it'd be all white, fluffy clouds. And then I got there, and I'm still here. And when, you, when the interviewer asked, why in the end have you done what you've done? York replied, it's filling the hole. That's all anyone does. What happens to the hole, the interviewer said. After a long pause, York said, it's still there. So when I hear somebody in our generation saying something like that, I go back to what Jesus said. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? So this guy from Radiohead has had a lot of fame, a lot of fortune, but when he got there, what does he say? There's still a hole there. More recently, NBA superstar Kevin Durant of... uh, of the Sacramento uh, Warriors, um, Golden State Warriors. Sorry, he just won two world championships. He was asked recently about his spike in technical fouls and ejections, and this is what Kevin Durant said. He says, It's just my emotions and my passion for the game. After winning the championships, I learned that much hadn't changed. I thought it would fill a certain void. It didn't. Now, if you've seen the Warriors play, they're an amazing team. Kevin Durant is one of the best players in the NBA, and he's got two rings now. But what does he say? This is his life. It's basketball. But what does he say? There's still this void there. And so when I hear Jesus' words 2,000 years ago, they still have meaning today. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? It's a brutally honest question. So I want to move on to chapter 10, and I want to look at 10, in in chapter 10 of Mark, and it's not going to be up on the screen, I'm just going to kind of, it's a long chapter, and I don't want to try to read all of it, but you can turn with me if you want to in chapter 10. And Jesus has a lot of things going on in this chapter, but I want to focus on four requests from four different people that come to Jesus in this chapter, which I find amazing. First, there are these people who are bringing their children to Jesus to have Jesus put his hands on them and to bless them. That seems like a normal request. But the disciples rebuke and say, no, no, don't bring those little, those least, those lost to Jesus. He doesn't have time for them. And Mark is the only gospel writer that says Jesus became indignant. Do you know what it means to become indignant? Have you ever become indignant when you see something going on that just, it just does something to your heart? And you go, what? You just kind of, and Jesus was indignant. Why are you telling them to shoo those kids away? Bring them to me. And Jesus brought them, and it says he held them and put his hands on them and spent time with them. And then there's a man that approaches Jesus, requesting that Jesus tell him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the second request. And then James and John, this is the third request, James and John pull Jesus to the side and say, hey Jesus, we know about your kingdom that you've been talking about, we understand that, but when you come in all your glory, we want to have the seat on the right and the left. Could you grant that to us, Jesus? That's what they're requesting. And then the last one, the fourth one I want to talk about, just briefly, 
is a blind man named Bartimaeus. And he comes to Jesus and says, I want to see Jesus. So four different requests. And I'm going to kind of go through these fairly quickly. But I want you to think about them. As I think about those requests and how close Jesus is to his crucifixion. And knowing that's where he's going. Every request has to affect him mentally. Think about that. It has to just add pressure to him. And I think about how... Um, close Jesus, his crucifixion. And two of these requests, if, as y'all notice, seem very selfish, don't they? And we're going to talk about the first one. Asking for Jesus to, um, to touch and hold and bless your child, that seems reasonable. Why wouldn't you want Jesus to bless your child when you know who he is? And to the disciples, Jesus does not have time for that, for the lost, the little, the least. But Jesus was more than willing to say, I want to give you my presence. I want to give you my time. And he did. But the man who wants to know the formula for inheriting eternal life comes to Jesus. You know, he comes and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus seems to sense this man is an overachiever in life. He's achieved a lot. Jesus already knows this, I believe. And although it seems an odd request to ask what you must do to inherit eternal life, because what do you do to inherit anything? Nothing. Someone simply leaves you an inheritance, right? You don't have to do anything. You simply got left in the will. So it seems an odd question that he's asking. But this man is an overachiever. He has achieved his whole life. He has gotten this because he has done this. And that's the way he's moved up the, up the ladder. Some of the other gospel writers call him the rich young ruler. So Jesus plays along with him when he says... Oh, you want to know what you have to do. Don't you realize eternal life is something that is a gift? You obviously don't understand that. You're an achiever, but you don't know that. And so Jesus plays along and reminds him, interestingly, of six of the Ten Commandments. And he tells him, do not murder, do not steal. And he does the bottom part. Those that have to do with the relationships we have with other people. He says, obey all those. And the man quickly says, I have, done, I have kept all those Jesus since I was a boy. But Jesus doesn't mention the first four, which are all about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. But this guy quickly responds that he's kept all those other six. Like it's some kind of formula. Like, Jesus, that formula is easy. Don't you have something else? Don't you have something more than a softball question for me? And Jesus says, I do have a challenge for you. Give me a challenge. I want to earn my eternal life. And then Mark says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's interesting that Mark wants you to know that Jesus looked him right in the face and said, I loved this man. He's off base. He's going after all the wrong things. He's going after what the world, he has the things of the world in his mind that he's trying to accomplish, and he doesn't really realize it. So Jesus basically says, okay, because I really love you, I'm going to tell you what you really need to do so that you don't forfeit your soul. And he says, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. So he's saying, that's not going to get you in heaven, but getting rid of those things will put treasure in heaven. So do that, and then he says, come follow me. And interestingly, y'all, this is the very same thing he says to all those he asked to be his disciple. Come follow me. They dropped their nets and came and followed him. Matthew just walked right out of a tax booth and followed him. But this man is being asked to do something that he can't do. The man wasn't willing to sell all he had. The man wasn't willing to give all to the poor. He wasn't willing to follow Jesus. He went away sad, Mark says, because he had 
great wealth. And I'm not going to get into in this sermon about wealth and how evil and all that is. But simply he could not follow Jesus because he was trying to accomplish something very different. He wanted this eternal life as an achiever, but yet he wanted it on his terms. He was pursuing the, thing, he was pursuing the things of man, trying to gain the whole world. And he wasn't really worried about forfeiting his soul. In his eternal life and the gift of grace is all free. And Jesus says, you don't understand that. Out of all the accomplishments you've made in your life, you still don't understand that eternal life as grace is something you can't accomplish on your own, no matter how successful you are. And he wasn't willing to lose his life in order to truly be in the presence of Jesus. And that's what Jesus wanted. So what about us today? Something, do we want something from Jesus? Or do we really want Jesus. This man wanted something from Jesus, didn't he? He didn't really want Jesus. He wanted something from Jesus. And then right after this, the disciples are like, what? This guy's an achiever, Jesus. We can't just let him walk away. Did Jesus go run? I always find this interesting. Jesus didn't run after him and goes, okay, how about you sell half? How about you just sell half? He didn't go after him. He didn't take away the, the bar for him. No, this is where he needs to be. I don't know if it's for all of us to sell everything and give to the poor, but that's what it was for him. And Jesus loved him enough to tell him what he needed to do in his personal situation. But the disciples are kind of blown away. If that guy can't make it, because in that culture they think wealth equals spirituality. If you have a lot of wealth, then God's blessed you because you've been so good, you've accomplished all these things. And Jesus goes, you guys don't get it either, do you? And Peter says, hey, we've left all these things. And Jesus says, hey, you will be... You will be taken care of. Don't worry about that, Peter. But he says, a winner can't earn eternal life. We're losers. We're in trouble. How can anyone be saved? He goes, Peter, you can't save yourself. He says, with God, all things are possible. And then he shifts that gear and he goes into talking about one more time. I want you all to understand clearly. You have this mixed up way you think life is supposed to be. That that guy's successful. No, he's trying to save his life. And in the process, he's losing it. I'm trying to get y'all to understand you have to lose your life to really gain it. And by the way, I'm going to show you that firsthand. And I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be beaten. And I'm going to be betrayed. And I'm going to be hung on a cross. And I'm going to be resurrected in three days. If Jesus told that to you, would you not be going, What? What? If we didn't know the rest, of the, story, the rest of the story, when Jesus said that to us, we would really be confused and I would be really depressed, wouldn't you? How is it that you've done all these things and now you're going to go to a cross and die? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. Case in point, James and John come up to him right after he has just told about his suffering and his death. And they say, hey... How about we get the best seats when you come into your glory? They've heard about the kingdom of God. They've talked about Jesus, so they know about it. But being in the presence of Jesus is not enough for them. They want part of the power. They want a part of the kingdom of glory, Jesus' kingdom glory. They are pursuing the things of man, not of God. They are wanting to gain at least a part of what the world says matters, this power, this status. And Jesus tells them, You really don't know what you're asking. Oh, oh, we do, Jesus. And he goes, oh, you do. You really think that you can drink the cup that I drink. You really think that you can be baptized with the baptism that I'm getting ready to go through. And they go, yes, Jesus, we can. And Jesus says, you have no idea. 
And I think he shows remarkable peace and patience here by predicting. I mean, I would have gotten so mad. Did you not hear I'm getting ready to die for you? And all you can think about is your place and power. What is wrong with you guys? But he just simply says this. He has this remarkable patience. because you know what? You are going to experience those things. You are going to drink from the cup. You don't understand what that is. You are going to be baptized with what I'm going to baptize. You don't understand what it is, but you are going to experience that. And he says, but you know what? Making seating assignments for what's going to happen later on, that's not my job right now. It's not my job at all. And this request found out by the other disciples, they're all mad about it. But are they really mad because they want to be in the presence of Jesus? No, they're mad because they were, you know, James and John beat them to the punch about asking for special seating for them. And Jesus sits them all down and reminds them, hey, if you want to be great, it's not like that guy that just walked away from me who could not be a follower. You have to be a servant of all. You have to understand that. That's why I came to serve and give my life as a ransom. And this is yet another reminder. And then the last request comes from blind Bartimaeus. And he's crying out, he's begging, and he hears through the crowd. He can't see, but he's heard about Jesus. And he hears Jesus is coming, and he's just yelling, Jesus, have mercy on me. And people are going, stop, be quiet, don't bother Jesus. He doesn't have time for the least and lost, but that's exactly who Jesus had time for. And finally, Jesus says, call him over to me. And the man, and he says, what do you want? He says, I just want to see Jesus. I just want to see. And he says, your faith has healed you. And the man can see again. Now, out of those four requests today, I think about myself. And maybe we all need to kind of re-examine ourselves during this Easter season. There's things we request of Jesus that we want to make our life better. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's normal. That's human. But sometimes that's all we do is just request Jesus to make my life better, to make my job better, to make my kids better, to make my marriage better, to make everything in my life better. And in the process, we're not really in the presence of Jesus like these little kids. And, and when, when blind Bartimaeus, Mark tells us his name, he's the only gospel writer that tells us this guy's name. But he was a real man who had a real name. And what did he do right after he was healed? It says he started following Jesus. Jesus didn't have to tell him to follow him. He wanted to follow Jesus. He had a new life. He knew what it was to be blind and now he could see. So when I think about that, Jesus responds to him because he sees the faith of this man. And this man immediately wants to follow Jesus. So what would your request be of Jesus today if he says, what do you want? What would you ask Jesus? You had one thing you could ask Jesus for today. What would you ask him? Man, that's a loaded question, isn't it? One thing that you would ask Jesus for today. Would it be for knowledge or power or status or something that Jesus would do to make your life here and now better? Or would it just say, Jesus, just promise that you will be I just want to be in your presence. Allow me to be in your presence always in all these things. Willing to follow and give up my worldly pursuit of all those things that empty, that are empty anyway. That still leave that void there. I want the void filled in my life, Jesus. And Jesus said that only happens when I'm in your presence. So I hope this week we will all consider the request we make of Jesus. 
and be reminded of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. When Jesus said that, you know, he didn't just call those 12 disciples. He called the crowd. And I don't think he just called the crowd, y'all. I think he called all of us to say, do you understand what being a follower of Christ really means? And I, and I thought about Will talking about what's happening to the we people. And I'm thinking, we don't understand persecution in this country, do we? We really don't understand what that means to, to have to, to deal with that. And it's an amazing thing. But this Easter, I want to challenge myself, I want to challenge all of us to realize Jesus loved us so much that he went through all of that. And our request, our request to him should be those that say, I want to be in your presence. I want to be in your presence. And I hope we will try to be in his presence as we go through this Easter season. Maybe you're here today and the thing that you need to do is fill that void that, 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 we've, that we've talked about some people in Jesus' time and our time have. There is this void. And it can only be filled with Christ. And if you need to name Him as your Lord and Savior today, we're going to offer that invitation. If you're looking for a church home where we preach that void can be filled with Jesus Christ and we come together in community as a church to try to help each other fill that void because we say, hey, we understand as the community of Christ, we can help people with those situations. If you have that decision to make, too, we ask that you come as we stand and sing. Mike's going to come and lead us. Let's stand.